as Nat had mentioned in his prayer, and we are grateful for the prayer. Thank you, Nat. We are very grateful for everyone that is with us this evening, for our good folks that are with us online. We're very happy about that, happy that uh, you're able to be with us. And we continue our study of the book of Daniel. I'm in, actually, Daniel chapter 10 tonight, Daniel 10. If you've been following along with us Wednesday night on the Internet, you'll see that we've been looking at these great passages of Scripture. And last Wednesday night, we were trying to handle one of the most difficult passages in the book of Daniel, and that's the 70 weeks of the ninth chapter. And I don't want to go back over that again, but at the same time, I just emphasize where we have been. It may be that you weren't with us or happened to miss that particular study that night. It could very well have easily happened. We are very happy that we're able to be back together again, and I launch into the last segment of the book, chapter 10, 11, and 12, which really is a unit. Um, it really is introduced for us in chapter 10, and then we see this tremendous uh, uh, vision of history in chapter 11 and then the concluding moments of chapter 12. One of the benefits that we have tonight is that uh, I can see you and you can see me and when you raise your hand, I can take your questions and your comments and I always encourage you to do that. When I was on the chat line, it was hard for me to see the questions and some would write questions and I might miss it. But here we have an opportunity to discuss back and forth a little better, and, and so let's take advantage of that opportunity. I want to give uh, just a little note of warning as we get into this section of the book of Daniel. I really believe, and I don't think this is far-fetched, I really believe you could get a Ph.D. in history and never cover the history we're, we're going to talk about. Most of the kings that we're going to study have very little consequence with regard to world history. However, they lead up to one who really does, Antiochus IV Epiphany. Um, this particular uh, king is one which is going to come up now in our discussion. He's already come up, matter of fact. If you'll remember our discussions in chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, he was the one, the little horn in chapter 8, which came up and was such a problem to the people of Israel. Somebody might ask the question, who is this for? Why are we reading this in Daniel? What is Daniel doing this? Why did God give this to Daniel? We'll jump over to chapter 10, about verse 14, and you have a pretty good purpose statement as to this rather unusual section of the Old Testament. You may actually want to mark that particular passage, verse 14 of chapter 10. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. So he's really talking about time, the time where Persia fades out Greece comes in, Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom and empire is divided among four kings, four generals who become kings. I'll identify them a little later. And then there are two that are very important, which I've emphasized already in our studies. One is Seleucus, which had Syria, 
and the other is Ptolemy, who got Egypt. Now, when Seleucus gets Syria, he gets a vast area of land, part of Turkey, Syria, Iran, Iraq, all the way to India. It's huge. Because of invasion, he's going to get Palestine, the beautiful land. We'll watch out for that as he describes it in that fashion. And there's always war between the Seleucid kings of Syria and the Ptolemaic kings of Egypt. And guess who's in the middle? It's Israel. And so Daniel is giving a future discussion and rundown on what's going to happen to the people of God leading up to the time of Christ. Now we saw that in the 70 weeks. And the emphasis of the 70 weeks in chapter 9, we saw from the infinitives that were used there. And we took each one of those infinitives. And we saw how that each one of those applied to Christ. And so to look at that last section of chapter 9 and see something other than Christ and, his, and it being fulfilled in Christ is a serious mistake. Because the 70 weeks is prophesying about Jesus Christ. But now he's going to say, what's going to happen in the meantime? What's going to happen between now and the coming of Christ? If you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that there's a blank page between the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, the book of Matthew. And when I was teaching school, I would say, now turn to the blank page in the Bible. And they'd turn to that page where it was a on the left-hand side was the Old Testament. On the right-hand side was the New Testament. Did you know there's 450 years between those two testaments? It's only separated for us with one blank page. There's 450 years that went on there. What goes on in the 450 years? Most of history is not that concerned about it. As it pertains to the Jewish people, it's very important. And so we have Daniel 10 and verse 14, and he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to God's people. And he's very concerned about that. And it's a rough road ahead of them. Ultimately, it brings us to the time of Christ. So with that precursory point ahead of us, it sort of gives us a little thumbnail sketch as to what we've got in store for us. And I don't want us to be confused in the matter, and it's easy to do. And I kept thinking, how am I going to teach this? How am I going to teach this history? Uh, chapter 11 is filled with history of the ancient Near East, and it's in a coded type of language, and everybody's got the same name. How am I going to teach this without it being confusing? So I've come up with a timeline, but I don't know that um, we'll get to it tonight. But I'll give you a timeline. We're going to put it in your in your box, and then you'll be able to take the, the page. It's a simple thing, and it will be able to break down who rules where and when. And then that will give us some understanding, some footing on what we're going to get into in chapter 11, an admittedly difficult chapter. I always hate to tell people this is a hard chapter. Because as soon as I say that, you're beginning to think, well, I'll never be able to understand that. I shouldn't begin it that way. But it is a difficult chapter, and it's going to take some serious reflection, a lot of study, for us to understand it properly. But we can do it. God gave it to us, and we're going to understand it, and we're going to see the benefit of it. Chapter 10. 
In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. The message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message, and he had an understanding of the vision. Now, this is in the third year. Now, in Cyrus, when Cyrus came and freed the children of Israel from Babylonian captivity, 536 B.C., now they have the edict of Cyrus, and they're able to go back to Babylon, I mean back to Israel. So Zerubbabel comes along, and if we were reading the Old Testament historical books, which we ought to do sometime, we ought to go into 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and just kind of study that through. If we were into those historical books, we would see that mentioned in Ezra. Ezra talks about the return under their leader, Zerubbabel, Ezra chapter 1. And as you go in through Ezra, we see that the children of Israel are allowed to go back. Now, you'll remember back in chapter 9 how that Daniel was kind of working on that. If you were with me last Wednesday night over the Internet, in the first part of that chapter, in the first year of Darius, the son of Azuherus, See, that's the name that was used in the book of Esther of Median descent who made uh, king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. That's a pretty important verse there time-wise. So he told us back in chapter 9, I was digging in the Bible trying to find out how long this captivity is going to last, and I found the wording in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, when we studied this last time, we went to that, we went to those Jeremiah passages. I'm not going to do it tonight, but we went to those back then, and we saw how that Jeremiah was prophesying that this chastisement that God was giving his people would last 70 years. Well, Daniel says, I was digging down into the Bible, and I was studying this, and I was trying to find out, and I found out that God had said it last 70 years. Well, the 70 years has got to be coming up. So the 70 years has come, and now God's people are allowed to go. And they've been gone about three years. They were gone by the time Zerubbabel led them back, some 50,000. Others would go back as well. As far as I know, Daniel never went back. I don't know why. Maybe Daniel's too old to go back. He's in his middle 80s. Maybe Daniel was told by God not to go back. Maybe whatever reason. I don't read where Daniel ever went back with the children of Israel. Ezra goes back. Nehemiah goes back. Zerubbabel goes back. Thousands of the Jews go back. And he probably is hearing some of the difficulty that they're having with regard to the matter of going back. But he tells us in verse 1 of our present study tonight, and the message was true and one of great conflict. Great conflict. I think in chapter 10, the great conflict that he has reference to here is a spiritual conflict. And it is a conflict which continually goes on and is continually waged. I'll read a little more, and, and maybe it'll be easier for us to see that point in a verse or two. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks 
I did not eat any tasty food, nor did, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but he's fasting. He has a great deal of grief, I think, over news probably of his brethren in Israel and the difficulties that he's facing. But there is um, an opportunity maybe for him here in that in his fasting and his focusing on God and God's word, he's more prepared in heart and mind to receive the vision he's about to receive. And so it could be that that's part of the plan of God with regard to him and how God is going to reveal these matters to him. On the 24th day of the first month, first month would be in about April, March, by our calendars, the month of Abid. And uh, in the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river that is the Tigris, Tigris, King James called it the Heidekel in the book of Genesis as it was trying to describe and locate the Garden of Eden for us. You have the river Euphrates and you have the Tigris, Tigris over a thousand miles long. Not the longest river in the world, the Amazon would be the longest, second longest would be the Nile. The Nile's not far behind the Amazon. Uh, the Nile is one of the great rivers of the world, of all the world. The Yangtze's, the Yellow River. Uh, there are a lot of great rivers uh, throughout the world, but the Tigris is certainly one of them, around 1,100 miles, miles, 1,100 miles long. This is a great river. This river runs from south, um, northeast, down, from, from northwest down to southeast, if I have it right in my mind, and empties into the Persian Gulf. Both these rivers do. If you have Bible maps in the back, you have the Gulf of Aqaba down there at the Persian Gulf, and the Tigris runs into it, and you have the Euphrates River running into it. And that was one of the ways in which uh, Cyrus was able to conquer the Babylonians is because of damming up the river, the Euphrates. The Euphrates ran right underneath the city. And it was built there ba on the basis that this is going to give us a great deal of water, and we'll, we'll have all the water we need, and we'll have all the sustenance we need with regard to any kind of attack. Well, that very idea was... The Achilles heel, so to speak, of the Babylonians as he dammed up the river and was able to move his troops underneath the massive walls of Babylon and conquer the nation. And God allowed him to do it. God gave him the ability to do it. Well, that's where he is. Now, I don't know why he's there. The text doesn't say. I'm in Daniel chapter 10 and the verse of verse 4. And I don't know why he's on the bank of the Tigris. He's not the only one that's there. Maybe it's some administrative duty as he does have very important administrative work. With regard to the kingdom, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So he was there with others. They didn't see the vision he saw. On the side of the bank of the Tigris River was a remarkable character he'd never seen before. 
And the dread that was there, somehow these other men, though they did not see, they felt the dread and they felt this matter as it was taking place and they ran and they hid. But Daniel was there and he saw. Now, the theories go back and forth with regard to the identity of the man that is described here. Some say it was an angel. I don't think it was an angel. I think it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And I'll tell you why I say that. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, you're going to see John goes through the same experience. And much of what John experienced is what we just read from the book of Daniel. And I'm in Revelation 1, I'm about verse 12, and as this great revelation begins, John sees this a revelation of Jesus Christ, the appearance of Christ. And notice the response that John has to the vision. And notice the response when we get back to it that Daniel had to the vision given to him. I'm in Revelation 1 and 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. When he had been, uh, when he, uh, it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Well, you'll recognize this particular passage from previous studies and John's response to that. We see already in Daniel chapter 10 a lot of similarity to the matter of what he saw and what John saw. But I'm not quite finished there. I think I'll go to Ezekiel when I'm on this point. I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 1. We're really going far out tonight. We're getting into the book of Ezekiel. Uh, uh, when's the last time we read that one? Um, Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, what an amazing, amazing prophet. Amazing. Anyway, I'm in about verse 21, I guess. I'll read just a verse or two. I won't read a lot. But what I'm looking for are similarities in the vision which Ezekiel saw and the vision which John saw and the vision which Daniel saw. And I think I'm beginning to come up with a good supposition, and the supposition is that this is a pre-incarnate Christ, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. By pre-incarnate, we simply mean before he took bodily form. When we talk about the incarnate Christ, we talk about his form in body, in body, body form, bodily form. But now here we're talking about a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And it could very well be that that's what we're seeing. It could very well be that that's what Ezekiel is seeing in Ezekiel 20, chapter 121. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, those stood still. And he ought to go back and read the wheel in the middle of the wheels. Now all the things that he saw. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. But I don't have time to do that tonight. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living being was in the wheels. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. 
under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, uh, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still and dropped, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in, a, in appearance, beautiful blue, you see. And on that which resembled the throne, high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. I'm in verse 27. Then I uh, noticed from the appearance of his uh, loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. Well, that's as far as I'll go with Ezekiel and what he saw. And I think we see a lot of similarity in these three accounts. Daniel chapter 10, uh, Revelation chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 1, when they come into the presence of deity, when they come into the presence of God, they fall down on their faces because of the greatness and the power of God and the holiness of God and the purity of God. Now, I can't say definitely sure this is Jesus Christ. I can't say definitely sure that this is a, an appearance of Christ before he took his bodily form. Some would say this is an angel, as angels are going to come up further in this chapter. But I suppose that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ on the other side, because I don't think it's Christ that is doing the talking to him a little further in the book, because this wouldn't follow true to form if we said it's just an angel. I'm looking at verse 7 where Daniel, I'm back in Daniel chapter 10, and in verse 7 Daniel is saying, I'm the only one that saw the vision because the rest of them, uh, dread filled them and they ran away and hid themselves. So I was left alone, verse 8, and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me for my natural color turned to a deadly pallor. And I retain no strength, verse 9. But I heard the sound of his words. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep in, on my face with my face to the ground. He did the same thing John did, the same thing Ezekiel did. Is this a, an appearance of God himself? I, I just don't know how to answer that particular question. I suppose that it would be more fitting that it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But again, I can't be... Uh, dogmatic over that particular matter either, but he knows he's in pr the presence of God. He knows he's in the presence of deity, and he has this very same reaction these other men of God had when they had a similar situation. And he says in verse 9, I fell into a deep sleep, and I think what he means there in verse 9, I fainted away. When I fell into that deep sleep, I fainted, and there was no way that I could... Um, actually be involved 
uh, on my own in the presence of the one who is on the bank of the Tigris River, verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. This sort of sets up a pattern. Now, I don't know that this is the man that he saw on the banks of the river that touched him. I suspect this is an angel here. Jump on down to about verse 18. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. Go to verse 19. He said, O man of high esteem, uh, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. In other words, we see this pattern of the angel touching him and giving him the strength to be able to talk and giving him the strength to be able to stand up, giving him the strength to be able to experience the powerful vision which is set before him. And we sort of see that in verse 16. And we see it here, verse 18, verse 19. In this particular passage, then behold, a hand touched me. And I think the hand there probably is um, uh, the hand of an angel in some human form, taking human form and giving Daniel some form of comfort, some form of recovery because he has fainted dead away. And he said to me, verse 11, O Daniel, man of high esteem. Now I want to stop right there and make reference to that particular matter because three times you're going to see that in this section of Scripture. God really loves you, Daniel. You're a man of high esteem. Now, this is, this is the New American Standard Version way of rendering it, but it is a passage which is used several times. God really loves you, Daniel. And it would have to be because of Daniel's submission to God and Daniel's willingness to do the will of God all of his life. His willingness to stand up for God in the midst of the lion's den. His willingness to stand up to Ariok, the, the head of uh, the people of Nebuchadnezzar, and say, I don't want to eat the king's food. Let's eat vegetables and water, drink water. We're not going to eat the king's food, chapter 1. This is the Daniel that, that stood for God uncompromisingly all of his life. And God is saying, you are greatly loved. And I'm looking for this in chapter 9, and I think I see it in verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to call you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And then I see it again here in our chapter 10 and verse 11. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, Understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So he gave him the strength to stand up and endure the experience of the vision, and he makes it clear that he's truly one that God loves, and um, uh, we understand why. Uh, then he said to me, Do not be afraid, verse 12. Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. God heard his prayer, and God sent a response. God hears the prayers of the righteous. He hears the prayers of his children. 
And he certainly heard the prayers of Daniel. And never get the idea that God's not listening to us and God's not concerned about us and that everything's going bad and nobody cares. Even if nobody here does care about you, God cares about you and God loves you. And you're very important to God. We may be just a social security number to the IRS, but to God we're somebody. And we may not be just but a constituent to the politician, but to God we're very important people. We're his children. And he hears us when we pray because we're his children. We've been faithful and obedient to the gospel and now have the privilege of prayer. And so we see that the angel is telling him, God really loves you. God has heard your prayers from the very beginning. And he's sending this message in answer to your prayers. Now see, Daniel's concerned about the people of God. And he's concerned about the problems that are going on. And God is giving him a revelation because of his desire to understand. Verse 12 again. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, you wanted to know. And you set your heart on understanding the will of God. And you humbled yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come to respond in response to your words. So it was his desire, Lord, I'm, I want to know. And we saw that back there in chapter 9 where he's looking up in the passages of Jeremiah. How long is this captivity going to last? Well, Jeremiah says it's going to last 70 years, and he's researching this matter. Well, that's the kind of mindset that Daniel had. He had a, a mindset to learn and to study and to understand the divine will of God. But he had also an attitude of willingness and a desire to do the will of God once he knew what the will of God was for his life. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing, withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Verse 13. Now, has anybody got a question about verse 13? Anybody? <laughs> I do too. I was going to ask you. Maybe I should have asked, the, asked it this way. Does anybody understand verse 13? Yeah, right. I suspect that this is a spiritual battle that's being referenced here. I suspect, notice how I use the word, that this is a spiritual battle, that this is not so much a physical battle. But it is a spiritual battle whereby Satan is working to thwart the purpose of God. Keep in mind that the king of Persia is on his way out. And the king of Greece, whose famous name is Alexander, is on his way in. And yet that was the point that God was making to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians are gone. Persia is on its way out. The next on the list is Greece. And Satan doesn't want that to happen. He's doing his best to thwart the purpose of that. Now, back to the point we read earlier, there is a great conflict. Verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. There's a great conflict going on. I think it's more than just a physical conflict. Now, there's going to be great physical conflict as we get into chapter 11 among these kings, but at the same time, it does seem when you have an angel over here that's doing the will of God, and he says, I've been withstood here for a period of time, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me, me who, the angel, 
that gave him the strength to receive the revelation, gave him the strength to understand the revelation. He was withstanding man. Who else comes to his aid? Michael comes to his aid. Now, if you go to the book of Jude, you're going to find Michael again. Michael's an archangel. You read in the book of Thessalonians, 1st 2nd Thessalonians, how that Michael uh, will come with a trump, the trump of God, and announce the end, the book of Revelation. He puts one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and heralds the coming of the Christ. This Michael is an archangel. Archangel means, I'm probably not using the right term, but he's the top angel. It seems that there's a hierarchy of angels. It seems as though there are certain angels that do this and certain angels that do that. You read over there in Ezekiel, you'll read about these angels. We, we kind of jumped over that and we went to his vision, but there seems to be a hierarchy with regard to these angels. One angel is named Gabriel. Gabriel seems to be, now if you see uh, making a mistake, please, please correct me. I'm happy for you to do it seems to be the deliverer angel. He goes to Mary and says, you're going to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Gabriel's saying that. And his king, he's going to be great. This is Gabriel telling Mary these things. He's relating these particular deeds. Michael seems to have another work, another job. But this particular angel said, I was withstanding the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. I can't see it being a mere man. It seems to me, and I say it that way on purpose, I'm trying to emphasize the fact that I can't be dogmatic about these particular points, but it seems to me that he's talking about a spiritual demonic type of one who's trying to thwart the purpose of God beyond the veil of our experience on life's other side. And you say, well, is there a conflict going on life's other side? Yeah, there seems to be. Let's go to the New Testament. Paul may have been giving us some information on that. Maybe we didn't quite get it or appreciate what, uh, what he was trying to say. But I think he was trying to give us some information on that particular line. I'm trying to think of the passage. Ephesians is the verse I'm having in mind right here. So let me go to the book of Ephesians. I don't want to make too much out of this. I don't want to make more than what the Bible actually says. But there seems to be a great spiritual conflict on the other side. Now, and I need to preach a sermon on this. Uh, Jesus has entered into the strong man's house and he has bound the strong man. With the death of Christ and the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the strong man has been bound. And Jesus was telling them, they were saying, well, now you do this by the power of Beelzebub. He said, now look, that doesn't make sense. He said, uh, go into the strong man's house. I bound the strong man. I'm not doing this by the power of Beelzebub. I have thwarted him. I have brought his work to an end. But this is before that. This is before the coming of Christ. This is before the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ on the cross. Here we have a great conflict. And I suppose that it's a conflict with regard to these particular matters over God's divine plan for his people. Now I'm in Ephesians chapter 6. I mentioned that. Let me start at about verse 10, but I think my point's in verse 12. I mean, Ephesians 6 and verse 10 begins by saying, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Really a, a very encouraging verse for us. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I wish I knew more about that. And he uses the phrase, heavenly places, and that over and over again in the book of Ephesians. And I rather suspect that what he's saying here is there's a great struggle with regard to human redemption. And that human redemption is being fought against by Satan and the emissaries of Satan. If you want to use the word demon, fine. The demons of Satan. I use the word emissaries. I don't know what else to call them. The imps of Satan, the stooges of Satan, the angels of Satan who are trying to do the wickedness and the work of Satan. And I suspect that's that's what I have here in Daniel chapter 10 and 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. I don't see how this could be just a mere man doing this. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. The progression is for the Persians to go out and the Greeks to come in. And that is part of God's divine plan in leading us up to Christ, chapter 9 and the 70 weeks. And he says, Satan's doing his very best to try to thwart that. Now I have come to give you, verse 14, an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. I want to help you understand what's going off into the future. You know, when I was online, we didn't have those bells, you know, then. I just kept going on. But we have the bells here, and we have to respect them. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being, was touching my lips. He couldn't even speak because of the experience of being in the realm of deity and in the realm of these angels. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have refrained and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk was such as my Lord. As for me, uh, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. I'm undone. I can't do this. I can't speak. I can't experience this. I just can't do it. I suspect that this is a different angel, verse 18, than this one, the one that we read back there in verse 16. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And I'm coming to verse 19. Wow, I'm coming to the end of this chapter. And he said, O man of high esteem. There it is again. Three times he says that about Daniel. Do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you remember why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince, verse 21. So what he's saying is, before I go back, I'm going to reveal this great prophecy 
that's going to take place regarding your people, the people of God. That was our verse 14. And before I go back and get back into the struggle, I want to help you understand what will take place. Now, chapter 11 is a complex chapter. So I came up with a little thing here, and I'll put it in everybody's box. And I didn't know if I'd get to it tonight, and I thought, well, I probably won't. And, uh, but I will try to have a timeline which I think will help us work our way through the 11th chapter of Daniel. Now keep in mind, keep in mind, who was this for? People of God. What people of God? The people of God that were in captivity that had come out. Daniel's people, God's people, the people that Daniel was concerned with. He's not talking about some kind of antichrist off into the future. In fact, Daniel never says anything about an antichrist. John in the New Testament talks about an antichrist, and as he does, he's referring to an ancient heresy of Gnostic Christians who didn't believe that Christ actually came in the flesh, and he rebukes them, and he refutes them. He's not talking about some great battle of Armageddon that's way out there in the future that nobody knows anything about. And the prince of Persia can't be Henry Kissinger or somebody like that way off into the future. I've heard that too. It's not J. Edgar Hoover or anybody like that. He's talking about the people of God in that day and time. But now he's going to go off and prophesy as to the history of the people of God which took place between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, the 450 years, which most people will never read and study. But it becomes essential as we study Daniel chapter 9, I mean 11 and Daniel chapter 12. Now, in a better understanding of the New Testament, this particular intertestamental period of history is very valuable because it's during this particular time that the synagogue develops, the Herodian family develops, they divide up Palestine into different areas like Perea and Decapolis and Galilee, and this one is in charge of Decapolis, and that one is in charge of Judea. And it's through this intertestamental period of time that we see why these areas were divided up the way they were and who gets to be ruler over what and how it all took place and transpired. And that's what Daniel's talking about in Daniel chapter 11. So it's not just academic history we're talking about. It is important. And I'll go back to what I said initially. Most of these kings are inconsequential. But they're leading us up to one king that is very important. And that is Antiochus Epiphanes. And we'll talk about him as we dig down into Daniel chapter 11. So what I propose we do, let's take our time. Don't everybody get so excited. Everybody relax. We're going to take our time, kind of look at this verse by verse, talk it out a little bit, and try to understand it best we possibly can. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And then back in uh, my concordance, 
for the body of Moses, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think you're right on that. I think your notes in your Bible are, are accurate on that particular matter of Michael and the important role that Michael plays, like in Jude verse 9, book of Revelation, that kind of thing. Michael plays a very prominent place as the archangel. Now, is he the same one? You made a point there, and I thought that was a good point. Um, is he the same one here? I got the idea that it's the one who's doing battle with the prince of the king of Persia, verse 13, that touches Daniel, and behold, one who resembled a human being. Now, that could be a different angel, or one like Gabriel, I suspect, and then this one, that would be the same angel. So it may be a different one in verse 15, but the one in 18 is the same as the one in 16 that touched him, but then the one in 16 might be a different angel. You know, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So you got a good point there. Is this the same one? It is the same one. 16 and 18 are the same one. But is 16 the one that is revealing these matters to him that was fighting with the prince of Persia? I just don't know. I got an idea. It's Gabriel. But that's just my idea. Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I think that's right. I think that is Michael speaking there. I think that is right. Somebody else. Somebody come up with a question I can answer. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Marvin. Yeah. Mm. As you hear us, King As you hear us, which would have been King Xerxes, who we will read about in chapter 11, who was a very wealthy king. Was Daniel still alive at that time? I'm not sure. Best answer I can give you is I'm just not sure on that one. That's getting to the end of Daniel. King Xerxes. Esther 1 1, he's called As you hear us. Same guy but he's extremely, extremely wealthy. And you're going to see that in chapter 11. Well, I wish I could do better on that. Let's see. Somebody else have a comment or question for me on any of this tonight? Daniel chapter 10. Anybody would be happy to. Well, thank you for your interest. I'll put this in everybody's box and then be prepared. Help us study a little bit out of chapter 11, which is very convoluted, but I think we can understand it when we look at that and, you know, just take it item by item. Somebody said, aren't we glad that this is not a matter of faith? I mean, um, we, we just don't and can't be dogmatic about some of these things, can we? Why don't we end our study tonight by having a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your love, for your great wisdom and your great knowledge in handling these things. We're so thankful for your word that you've given us a glimpse of your glory and an understanding, some understanding of your wonderful plan of salvation that, we've, that has come to light in the New Testament and that we can understand and know and obey. And we're so thankful, Heavenly Father, that it's so plainly put for us and we can come to understand what it means to be in Christ and have this wonderful relationship with Jesus. 
Forgive us of our sins, Heavenly Father. Our desire is to understand your word and to live it each day in our lives. Heavenly Father, hear us when we pray that we're grateful for your love and for your providential care for our lives. We're praying for this congregation of people who love you. We pray for the sick of this congregation who need you, as we all do. Be with us now as we depart from this place, and in the end, give us a home with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.